Coming up, former Boston Globe reporter Dick Lair, the author of the book Black Mass, now a new movie starring Oscar frontrunner Johnny Depp. And I check back with awards expert Sasha Stone as Oscar season is thundering in. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for listening. Six of the last seven Best Picture Oscar winners had their North American or world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival. And as promised, we check back with the formidable Oscar tracker, Sasha Stone of Awards Daily. She just got back from Telluride and is going to give us an update to see how the Oscar race is shaping up. But first... The city of Boston plays a huge role in several important movies shown at Telluride and on the festival circuit that are coming out this fall. For example, Spotlight, about the Boston Globe's investigative reporting unit, the so-called Spotlight Team, and their coverage of the Massachusetts Catholic sex abuse scandal. And then there's Johnny Depp's portrayal of the terrifying, real-life Boston crime boss Whitey Bulger in the new movie Black Mass. I'm honored to talk to Dick Lair, who spent decades reporting on Whitey Bulger and his unholy alliance with the FBI. And together with Gerard O'Neill, Dick Lair has co-authored several books about Bulger, among them the critically acclaimed New York Times best-selling book Black Mass, now adapted into a movie directed by Scott Cooper. Mr. Lair is a professor of journalism at Boston University. From 1985 to 2003, he was a reporter at the Boston Globe and a longtime member of the newspaper's investigative reporting unit, The Spotlight Team. He consulted on the Black Mass screenplay and on the set of the movie that was filmed on location in Boston. I need to know everything you know about the Winter Hill Gang and specifically what you know about your former boss and now fugitive, James Whitey Bulger. What's that? In the beginning, Jim was a small-town player. He's a very smart, disciplined man. Take your shot, but make it your best. Because I get up, I eat you. And the next thing you know, he's a damn kingpin. You know why? Because the FBI let it happen. I grew up with Jimmy and his brother Billy, the senator. And that is a bond that doesn't get broken. Your brother is waiting in some very dark waters. Jimmy's business is Jimmy's business. We all need friends. Even Jimmy. Even you. Now we'll be talking about true life events and reporting and writing of his book. So of course there's going to be some true life spoilers coming up. James Whitey Bulger was born to Irish-American parents and grew up in a public housing project in South Boston. While his brother grew up to become one of Boston's most powerful politicians, William Bulger, former Massachusetts Senate president, Whitey would become undoubtedly one of the most terrifying criminals in American history, and he kept Boston in that terrifying grip for decades. After his arrest in 2011, he had been on the run for 16 years by then, he was found guilty of federal racketeering, extortion, conspiracy, and involvement in 11 murders. Mr. Lair's book, Black Mass, centers on Bulger's FBI informant years, and Agent John Connolly, a rising star in the Boston FBI office. He offered Bulger protection in return for helping the feds eliminate Boston's Italian mafia. Whitey's deal with Connolly's FBI spiraled out of control, a corrupt relationship leading to the FBI essentially allowing one of the most notorious criminals in U.S. history to grow even stronger. I asked Dick Lair, 
Through the years of covering the Bulger and FBI corrupt alliance, how has he come to feel about the relationship between law enforcement and informant? How close should they get? Gosh, it's gotten, um, you know, journalists are trained to be skeptical, but this uh, has the tendency to make you feel just cynical about uh, government and law enforcement because the horror here um, is, is goes beyond, um, you know, this was, was so much bigger than, say, corruption and, or compromise or, or a failure of a single investigation that may have been, you know, involving one crime and in, in, in one year or something. What's so shocking and, and mind-boggling is that this went on for two decades or more, and it was a culture of corruption that was part of the FBI, the institution, and, and the nation, the, the top law enforcement agency in the United States. And it just becomes mind-boggling to think that, you know, that it could get so bad and be in play for so long and cause so much damage to justice, to people, murders, and all that kind of stuff. That uh, how, how could that happen? How does that happen? You know, we tried to get at that and answer some of those questions in, in, in our reporting and our journalism. Um, but and, and I think we have come up with some of them. But they still are deeply disturbing that it, it, something could have gotten started the way it did and then gone on for so long without any kind of corrective measures. So you've reported and written three books on James Whitey Bulger. How did this journey begin with him for you? Well, the journey began um, as, an, as a reporter for the Boston Globe uh, in the late 1980s when we set out to write. Uh, essentially, it wasn't really an investigative piece. It was more of a human interest story about Whitey Bulger and his younger brother, Bill, who was a very powerful politician in Massachusetts, arguably the most powerful. And, and, and they'd grown up in the uh, neighborhood of South Boston in a housing project and shared a bedroom as boys. Uh, it just seemed to be a fascinating untold tale of two brothers who, by the late 1980s, were at the top of their respective fields. I mean, Whitey was this gangster killer, uh, the most powerful uh, underworld figure, and his brother Bill was a very powerful politician. Mm -hmm. So that's where the journey began. And in the course of that, in focusing on Whitey, who, like I say, was a legendary criminal figure, we began to peel the onion, so to speak, and discover and uncover um, this unholy alliance with the Boston FBI. I understand that um, you have some unique research and sources and materials. Can you talk a little bit about what you found while you were writing this? Well, you know, the, the writing and the reporting now, you know, spans a couple of decades. It, it was a mixture of, you know, interviews, personal interviews um, with underworld figures, um, with law enforcement sources inside the FBI and in other police agencies, um, getting access to all kinds of uh, government investigatory documents over time um, as, as criminals were debriefed or some of the figures were questioned and getting those transcripts. All that stuff you put into a big stew, and that becomes the stuff of, of narrative nonfiction. This fall, there's several big movies that are really capturing the critics about the spotlight team, the investigative unit at the Boston Globe that you were a part of. Tell me why this is such an incredible journalistic institution. Well, first of all, I mean, the odds of two movies coming out at the same time that involve journalism, you know, done by the Boston Globe spotlight team... Who would have thunk, you know? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's strange. That, I have no explanation. And I have, that's just a, just a strange oddity because both of these stories, I mean, the, the Globe stuff was, you know, goes back to the 80s and the church is uh, reporting goes back 
eight or nine years, ten years at this point. So it just seems a just a very odd coincidence that this would they would both come out like as they are this fall. Um, and uh, but it, it does ref, you know what they both speak to and 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 the movie Spotlight more so than Black Mass because movie Spotlight is actually about the journalism. Um, yeah, I mean the the, the Globe made a commitment. Um, back in the 70s to investigative journalism. And to do so, they created a team that would specialize in that. And there's reporters have gone in and out of that team all through the years. And even as print journalism has suffered, the Globe has never wavered in its commitment to the importance of watchdog journalism. And that's what the Spotlight team is all about. They still keep that going? Yeah, the Spotlight team is still there. And, you know, again, and, and, and it's a testament to the Globe's commitment to public service, which is what journalism, I think, is all about, uh, because other sections and bureaus have closed and stuff, but uh, the spotlight is seen as an essential component of serving the community. In the biography, you, you argue that Whitey is the most significant crime figure in the late century. Why would you say that? A couple of things came into focus. The first is his longevity. He's 85, 86 now. Um, He's outlasted everybody and has lived a long life in a profession um, that doesn't have a long shelf life, frankly. Um, so there's that aspect. Um, you know, when you measure him against or think of him against uh, some of the household name American crime figures, whether it's Al Capone or John Dillinger or more recently the mafia's John Gotti, you know, they all have killed and they all have made millions of, of, of dollars illegally. But the one thing that put Whitey at the front of the line is this thing he had with the F of a corrupt FBI. He managed to dominate a band, a group of agents in Boston, who in effect became part of the gang. First of all, no other crime boss, no other crime figure has accomplished that. And not just for a period, you know, a months or a few years, we're talking about for a couple of decades, um, where FBI agents were in effect members of the gang. I think that's his sort of claim to infamy. that uh, puts him at the front of the line. Describe his personality. Oh, he's uh, a mixture of, of charisma, because I think you could, if he was trying to charm you, if you were in the room with him, I think he could make you believe the world is upside down, is flat. Uh, he's, he's that good. Um, but in an instant, he could, could turn and, and slice your throat. He's a truly scary figure. He, he's, a, I mean, there's a, he's a psychopath. I mean, he's really yes. been... Oh, yeah. That was, you know, we worked with, in, in doing the biography, trying to, one of the challenges or responsibilities I felt we had as, as, as biographers was to try to get at the why of Whitey. And uh, uh, I consulted with a forensic psychiatrist uh, here in Boston who's pretty well known and has worked on uh, some pretty major criminal cases and assessed and diagnosed uh, murderers and whatnot. Um, and I would get information that, you know, she was just helping me out and bouncing stuff off and, and um, and uh, and she helped come up with a kind of an insight into into Whitey Bulger, and he yeah, and no question in my mind that he's a psychopath, and and that's someone who's just a supreme narcissist and doesn't think twice about in his instance killing anybody when it serves him. Everything in the world, people, places, events have to serve him, uh, and and that's the history of Whitey Bulger. I need you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying because there are lessons again and again throughout your whole life. You gotta learn from these things, right? It's not what you do. It's when and where you do it. And who 
you do it to or with. If nobody sees it, didn't happen. Jimmy, he's six. You really think that's the best thing to be telling your kid? Yeah. And to understand his story, you sort of have to know about the Boston that he came to rule over. Um, tell me a little bit about that, the cultural aspects of that Boston. Sure. It's a, it's a city of neighborhoods. And especially in the, um, in the 60s and late 50s when he came you know, home from prison in the 70s and 80s, um, it was much more so then than it is today. Uh, and he's from this you know, largely Irish Catholic South Boston neighborhood, which even geographically is sticks out from Boston, a, a kind of peninsula that isolates it some, and there's just a bridge that uh, connects it to, to you know the uh, the heart of Boston. Um, and it's uh, there's always been a kind of a, a Southie pride and an us against them uh, uh, culture in South Boston, and that's where he grew up. And he actually, um, I would say, um, you know, manipulated that culture to his ends. Again, his narcissism, his, his, his say psychopathic goals um, where you know he exploited the us against them and and got everyone to be loyal to him and to what he was up to and be wary of outsiders and you were talking before about the Bulger brothers the one that rose to big political power and um, James who who became this powerful criminal what do you know about their relationship how much did did his brother know well I think um, he cert- uh, they're very close and very loyal to one another to this day. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's one of the great debates and controversies is um, that Bill Bulger um, did, n- did not do more for the greater social good uh, in bringing his brother to justice once it became clear that uh, uh, with the FBI watching, um, Bulger had basically a license to kill. Um, uh, you know, it's it's a brother's story, but it's also one that uh, it's tough to judge. Um, but at a certain point, you you have to think that um, Bill Bulger knew as, as as much as the public did, and maybe could have done more to bring his brother to justice. But their history is otherwise. I mean, completely very close. We and other journalists have documented as best we could the interactions between the two um, during the heyday, meaning the '80s, when they were both at the top of their game. There's no question that Bill knew something about Whitey and the FBI, um, but it would make totally understandable if he didn't want to know too much. Mm. Uh, but that, that, there, that there was a connection, uh, there's no question in my mind that Bill knew about it. Do you think that Bill knew where he was the 16 years that he was um, a fugitive? Well, there again, what's been documented in the first month that Whitey Bulger went on the run as a fugitive in 1995 he, uh, a phone call was arranged between the fugitive and criminal Whitey and his brother Bill. Mm. And Bill, when asked about this years later, felt he did not have, um, he did not turn uh, his brother in, did not tell the authorities about the phone call because he didn't feel he had a responsibility to do so. Obviously, other people have thought otherwise. But the, to, to your question, that did he know where, that, uh, that Whitey was in Santa Monica for about 14 years of the 16 years he was on the run? There's no evidence uh, that surfaced to say that he did. And in fact, um, the story as we know it, the evidence as we know it, is that you know Whitey fled in, in the January of 95 and he pulled into Santa Monica at the end of 96, almost two years later. It, the indications are that he, he really did cut ties, Whitey did, with, his, with, with some of his loyal gang members and also his family. 
by by speculating for a second, you kind of have to think that one way or another over the years there might have been a message back and forth, just that you know doing okay, help hope everyone's okay or whatever. But there's no evidence of that, uh, and it, and from the record, it does uh, seem as if Whitey did what any fugitive is supposed to do, uh, which is you know rule one is to cut all ties, um, because the government was after a while watching. Bill Bulger and other family members to see if there was some sort of uh, connection. And what about John Connolly? Tell me a little bit about him. Boy, John Connolly, uh, I mean, he's the third leg of the stool here. John Connolly is the FBI agent who, in the fall of 1975, approached Whitey under the auspices of the FBI's echelon, you know, informant program and, uh, and said and asked Whitey to you know, join the team, so to speak. Uh, in their mutual interest in getting the Italian mafia. That was the FBI's number one priority. And on paper, um, there was nothing wrong with Conley because he had grown up in South Boston. He knew the Bulgers. He knew Whitey. He actually adored uh, the Bulger family. Um, from a law enforcement perspective, um, he's, if he's a true and honest agent, um, he's just exploiting his contacts, his connections, right. and trying to get other, you know, an, another criminal to help them against the mafia, which is what the FBI was mainly after. So on paper, maybe it made some sense, but very quickly the whole thing went awry and, and went you know, way off track uh, and resulted in enormous harm and, and mayhem because Conley became um, Whitey's informant as well as Whitey Conley's informant. And what effect did this have on Connolly to sort of be under his power? Uh well, you know, he's in jail today uh, as a result of it. But over the years, again, starting mid-70s and through the 80s, um, you know, that was their unholy alliance, as we've described it in Black Mass. And it was a secret among a handful of agents who were corrupted and protecting Whitey that there was this uh, horrific, you know, uh, corruption going on. And publicly, uh, John Conley um, was a man about town um, who was getting promotions and, and awards because he was had good informant information and was making a difference in the war on the mafia? Yeah, I mean he was he was a high profile, uh, successful, and ambitious agent. But underneath it was all this toxicity. How come no one has nailed Whitey Bulger? He seems to be involved in every crime in the city, and yet the bureau keeps saying he's clean. Well, what's Bulger done? What's he done? Everything. <laughs> Have things changed post after this case? I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not really sure. <laughs> it does go to the um, hazards of, of, of cops working with informants, within criminals. Um, the, the criminals are always going to try to turn the tables and get the edge as a result of the relationship. I think it's incredibly challenging. But with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, um, obviously... Putting John Conley in a position to, um, and he's 10 years younger than Whitey, uh, of a psychopath like Whitey. I mean, Conley was no match for Whitey. And that was, you know, and again, with the benefit of hindsight, it was doomed from day one. And, and it just shows you, uh, you know, it never should have happened, that relationship, and just the hazards of it all. Um, it's a very, very difficult game. I know the FBI and the Justice Department have overhauled their so-called informant guidelines, but, and and they, they do seem stronger in terms of checks and balances, but they seem pretty strong back then, too. And it's because it's about people who execute the checks and balances. And 
when you start corrupting people up the chain of, of, of that ladder, up the steps of that ladder, uh, then you know, no amount of paperwork and, and guidelines you know, do any good on the ground. Mob bosses, you know, tend to hate rats. <laughs> I'm thinking that that uh, Whitey Bulger, being sort of a rat himself, he denies this that he ever did it. Yes, well, after his capture and at his trial two years ago, he seemed uh, to accept his guilt on all the crimes—the murder, the drug trafficking, and all that stuff. But the one thing he seemed to be message he was trying to channel through his attorneys was this denial that he was ever a rat or informant and. It's almost laugh out loud. I mean, you want to cover that, and it's interesting that he makes that claim, but it does go against a mountain of evidence to the contrary. I mean, I think he truly believes he wasn't a rat, even though he was, um, because uh, the record says shows he was, um, because that's so unacceptable to himself and his culture. He loathed informers, and he himself, as a crime boss, was quick to kill anyone suspected of being a rat to his organization. So I think it's all kind of a spin in mental gymnastics uh, that he had to go through in order to become comfortable with this, what was a business deal. I mean, he was given uh, to the FBI and getting a lot more back. I mean, it was, He thinks he's like playing the system or something. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's giving them something mm. and he's getting a, a bigger return, which is the FBI protection. Right. So that's good business to him. But he was an informant. Uh, he can come up with his wordplay and his mental gymnastics because... And, and this does, there is record to this as well, because Conley, when introducing Whitey to some of the other agents, he would also, he would warn them, he said, don't ever call him an informant, call him a liaison or, <laughs> or a consultant. That's what I mean about the, so he came up with this wordplay so that perhaps he could sleep at night. But, you know, an informant is an informant. If you're, if you're telling the government about the activities of other underworld figures, including members of your own gang, you're an informant. Um, so he was caught in 2011 after being a total of 16 years, and he's still alive? Yes. Does he know about the movie? Does he know about your books? Well, I know only know secondhand that he certainly knows about the books and the movie, and he mm-hmm. likely hates it all. <laughs> and what do you think of Johnny Depp's portrayal? It's chilling. Yeah? How did you feel when you saw him as him the first time? Well, I when I saw him on the set and met him, and he's, you know, between shots, between scenes, and he walked up to introduce and we're talking. It, it was a sort of surreal, disorienting experience because here's Depp, has, has the whitey swagger down, has the mannerisms, has the look, uh, and Depp is Johnny's acting. He's in some place between himself and whitey, mm-hmm. you know, some strange place. So that was very unnerving, but uh, his performance I, I think he just knocked it out of the park. What's the, fam- what's the family secret recipe? It's, gr- it's ground garlic and a little bit of soy. That's it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I thought it was a family secret. <laughs> it's a recipe. No. No. You said to me this is a family secret. And you gave it up to me, boom. Just like that. You spill the secret family recipe today. Maybe you spill a little something about me tomorrow. Hmm? Look, I was just saying that... You were just saying. Just saying gets people sent away. 
Just saying. Got me a nine-year stretch in Alcatraz. You understand? So, just saying. Could get you buried real quick. Talking about sort of Boston, this was a long time. This was decades of, of being ruled by Whitey and all this. What, what are the scars for Boston? Well, I think it's, you know, in a big sense in terms of, you know, hopefully law enforcement, uh, which was deeply divided over this scandal, um, has, has moved on and gotten past it. Um, I'm talking about law enforcement generally, like Boston police, state police, the FBI. Um, relations between the different police agencies were horrible during this period. Uh, as a result of this scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully that's improved. The FBI, I wonder if they've, there's any lessons learned because um, there's no question based on, um, again, the history of this, that it was an institutional corruption and problem. And yet, even now, they, they try to spin it that it was really a couple of bad apples, a couple, a handful of ro- rogue agents mm-hmm. off the reservation, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's troubling because that's, the FBI, again, trying to minimize what was an outrageous and historic scandal. Uh, and they have to face up and, and confront the, the scope of it, but I think to, to win the public's um, you know, uh, trust again. So I, 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 there's concern there. Um, you know, it is history now. I mean, Whitey's done, and he's been done for a long time, uh, and his organization has been wiped out. Um, but there are the families of the victims who... I think that's where it's, it stays an open wound and stays raw. Um, the, the victims of all the Whitey murders and the gang's murders. And how do you think they're awaiting the movie? Well, I think it's, you know, it's difficult for them. Uh, they worry, as, as I did as a journalist, that you know, somehow Hollywood would glamorize Whitey and make him seem uh, uh, some kind of Robin Hood figure, which was the old myth of Whitey. Thankfully, and uh, that's not happened. Director Scott Cooper's portray, you know, rendering of Whitey Bulger is spot on. I mean, he's a scary, a cold-blooded killer, uh, uh, and it's dark, uh, and so that's good. Thank you so much, Dick, for taking your time to talk about this. It's really interesting, and um, congratulations on the book and or all the books and the, the movie. We're looking forward to that. Thank you, Christina. We said we would check back with her, so here we go. I'm super happy to be joined again, as promised, by arguably the best Oscar tracker in the industry, Sasha Stone. She's the founder-editor of the film awards site Awards Daily and has written for Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. Last time, it was post-con. Now it's post-Telluride, and things are heating up in the Oscar race. So many good movies. Thank you so much for joining me again, Sasha. Oh, thank you for having me, and thank you for that very, very nice introduction. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so like you said last time, other festivals, for example, you know, Venice is at the same time here as Telluride. They're good indicators of the Oscars, but Telluride has become a particularly powerful indicator. Six of the last seven Best Picture winners had their North American or world premiere at Telluride. Why? What's, what's, the, what's the thing about Telluride? A film... It doesn't reach its height at Telluride. It, it is kind of um, not overlooked, but underestimated. And so that it has an easier chance of winning. If you come out of the race in September as the front runner, it's much, much harder to win Best Picture unless you're, you know, a movie like 
Schindler's List or, you know, that that's just such a big movie that there's no way anyone's going to vote against it. But like with Argo, for instance, nobody thought Argo was good enough to win. And the same with Birdman. When it played Telluride, people thought that's not good. And, you know, that's the Academy voters are going to be put off by it. They couldn't have been more wrong in the in their assessment. But the other thing about Telluride, so in one way, it's all it doesn't kill expectations for a movie the way a bigger festival like Toronto or the New York Film Festival can, because it has less people coming to it. And the reason for that is it's expensive to go. It costs like around seven, eight hundred dollars just to buy a pass, and that includes press people. I always I have to buy my pass every year. And then there's lodging. I, you know, my lodging was around seventeen hundred for the weekend, and that's really, really pricey. Um, so you can't just and can. You, there's wiggle room with Airbnb and various other ways to stay there, and your credential is free. And the same with Toronto. The same with, um, I think, the same with Venice. Although Venice could be comparable in that it's expensive to stay in. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an expensive, exclusive little festival. Telluride is, is a soft landing. It's a good way. And, and the, the key with Telluride, the key is that the people who attend that festival are in the exact same demographic as ca- Academy voters. Mm. They're kind of, um, you know, baby boomer liberals with a lot of money and kind of free time on their hands. Most Academy voters are retirees, you know, um, who are living a decent life and just want to be good people. And they're very similar to the, the uh, to attendees at Telluride. So you kind of get a, it's a great way to test how your movie's going to play with that particular type of person. And so what does your crystal ball say? Last time we talked, we talked a lot about Carol, which I know is there, but what, what is it now? What, what are the big ones? Well, the one that really popped at Telluride was Spotlight, and that's directed by Tom McCarthy, stars Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, um, and it's about the Boston Globe finally uncovering the, the church um, scandal, the Catholic Church, the Archdiocese of Boston covering up the child molestations. How do you say no to God? Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. We need to focus on the institution. Show me that it came from the top down. They'll try to silence anyone who speaks out. You leave me alone, you hear me, goddammit? 6% act on sexually. 6% is 90. 90 priests. If there were 90 of these bastards, people would know. Maybe they do. Basically, the church was buying off the victims. And there were a couple of lawyers, Stanley Tucci's one of them, who were fighting against this, but they couldn't get press because the Boston Globe was helping, not maliciously, but just because that town, they stand behind the church. They just didn't want to confront it. And so this is about the Boston Globe finally atoning for their own culpability and keeping that a secret and it's mostly about these journalists who do such a good job and are so dedicated to the story and it really takes you back to a time when journalism was just a sort of a different uh profession than it is now we love a good journalism movie yeah there's been a few good oscar winners of course in that category Mm -hmm. what do you think for writing and best picture and acting well, the thing about Spotlight that people are going to say, and it's true, it's not a splashy movie. It doesn't have any sort of big redemptive moments or really uh, extreme emotional scenes like a lot of best picture movies have to have. Winners. I mean, I think it's a nominee for sure. 
but it's just it's just that one movie that nobody had anything negative to say about it and that's usually your biggest threat come oscar time because that's what people are voting on they're really voting on the movie that offends them the least mm. when they pick their best picture winner or a movie that they really love so spotlight's not going to really get the i really loved it vote as much as it's going to get the yeah that was a good movie you know it, it didn't do anything wrong so we get to tell you right and it's carol it's spotlight uh, it's Beast of No Nation. You like that movie. I loved it. And that's Kari Fukunaga, who was the director of True Detective season one. Yeah, I think he's a genius. And I think that he, you know, that, that it was a, it's a scandal that the movie was passed up by every studio and that it finally had to be picked up by Netflix and it almost just went to Netflix. And, um, and then they, they put out the money to, to give it a proper release and are, are kind of backing it publicity wise. But it's going to be hard to break through to the Oscars because they're weird about the studios, you know, they're, they're, they tend to, to these, this is their bread and butter and their history and their friends all oh, work. So they skew studio. towards the studio movie. Absolutely. It's going to come with a lot of baggage that it's Netflix, but it's such a good movie that I think it can well, What's the main story? It's, a- it's about a, a boy soldier in Africa. The book very deliberately says, they don't mention a township or a place or, or a rebel army name or anything. It's just to kind of a, you know, somewhere in war torn Africa, um, uh, this, this young boy is abandoned by his family when they have to leave this village because they're, you know, they can't survive that they're just too poor and there's no room for him in the car. So they leave him behind in this horrible heart wrenching scene. <laughs> and then he's kind of forced to become a child soldier and he's, he's taken in by charismatic leader. Who's Idris Elba. He plays the commandant. And he's sort of bossing around and ordering around these little kids. And this is sort of about how this boy is is dehumanized, you know, along the way. Everything that he loves and holds dear and makes him human is taken away from him. I saved your life. I saved your life. I saved your life. Go! All of you that have seen your family killed, you now have something that stands for you. It has put the weapons of this war back in the hands of you, the young, the powerful. I'm a good follower, sir. I will always protect you because you are my son. And a son always protects a father. It just has such a powerful ending. And it's a hard sit as he's being taught to kill people in a very brutal, violent fashion. It's hard to watch, but that's genius. I mean, this is like on the level of Apocalypse Now, I think. It's it's just a really good movie. And so important right now, thinking in the state of the world. Yes, and Americans, especially Oscar voters, are just so cut off from that. You know, they're so insular with their with their experience. And uh, I just really admire that he that he took on this subject and, and that no studio would pick it up is just embarrassing, I think, for Hollywood, that they're really that um, shallow, that they wouldn't even think that people might want to see this movie. Um, the other big movie there to pay attention to is Steve Jobs, which is the Aaron Sorkin um, uh, written and Danny Boyle directed. You have to say it in that order because okay. it's very much... <laughs> very much an Aaron Sorkin movie more than mm. it is a Danny Boyle movie. Um, he's there and he's, he's interpreting the screenplay, but he's really giving it over to Sorkin and it's almost as though Sorkin directed it, you know? So I'm interpreting. There's a lot of good dialogue. <laughs> it's a hundred percent dialogue. Yeah. So 
that's what makes it unique. I mean, I, I think the only other movie I can compare it to is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I don't know if you ever oh, saw yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So it's like that. It kind of takes place in one area with a lot of brilliant dialogue throughout uh, and great speeches. At 9.41, the planet's going to shift on its axis, nine forever. Two most significant events of the 20th century. The Allies win the war and this. You can't write code. You are not an engineer. What do you do? The musicians play the instruments. I play the orchestra. I sat in a garage and invented the future because artists lead and hacks ask for a show of hands. I love that you don't care how much money a person makes. You care what they make. But what you make isn't supposed to be the best part of you. You're the only one who sees the world the same way I do. No one sees the world the same way you do. What did you think of Fassbender as Steve Jobs? Oh, he's great. He's just great. And he's, if if you're not an Aaron Sorkin fan and you're not into the dialogue, you should see it for his performance alone. It's really good. Is he Oscar, you think? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll be nominated for sure. And it'll probably get a Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay. I mean, these guys are just so well-liked in the industry that, I figure it's going to get all the top nominations. I don't know if it's the winner. I just don't know that yet, you know. Anyone come out of Telluride that you see best actress? Well, you know, it's always so frustrating because I saw Suffragette with Carrie Mulligan. I loved it, and mm -hmm. I loved her and the part. And, you know, then I just started hearing the rumblings of people. You know, a few people liked it, but it was coming out of this kind of it's not good enough vibe. Oh. And so I was thinking, okay, well, there's one movie starring women that's not going to get in the race. Um, so, and then, so now we have to just count on Carol as being the other big movie. Um, uh, and there's another one that you should pay attention to called Room, which stars, um, Brie Larson as a mother who was abducted as a teenager and be, been held in this shed and raped repeatedly mm -hmm. by the, her captor. And she has a baby and, and this is sort of about her raising her son under these extreme circumstances. I guess they still can't hear us. Do you remember how Alice wasn't always in Wonderland? She fell down, 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 deep in a hole. Right, well, I wasn't always in room. I'm like Alice. Now we've got a chance. I'm scared. I know. Truck. Truck. Wiggle out. Wiggle out. Jump. Jump. Run. Run. It's a really uplifting, really interesting movie. It's not just like I thought it was just going to be about her in this shed. Yeah, I didn't think you would use the word uplifting, but the, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. interesting. <laughs> but it is, it is because um, you know, they're they're trying to keep this sort of down on the down low, but the movie's really more about her relationship with her son once they get out of there than it is about her being held in that room. Can I just go back, ask real quick about Suffragette? Do you think these rumblings you were saying, are they unfair? Is it because it's such a female-dominated movie? I mean, is it, are we? Are they seeing it in the wrong light? Or You know, it's interesting because <laughs> we, just, we just have sexist perceptions because mm. if you looked at Suffragette and you, and you thought that, let's say, Robert Altman directed it, everybody would say it's a genius work because it's so subtle, because he doesn't give you all the emotions and stuff. Um, they would get, cut him a huge break because he's Robert Altman. Mm -hmm. But a woman doing the exact same movie is treated differently. And yes, there are a couple of moments that are seem a little implausible. 
and it's so subtle. I mean, she never, the, the movie feels like a first act of a three act story. Mm-hmm. Like this is how they got to the place um, before they actually earned the vote. But you know, that doesn't make it a bad movie at all. I mean, to me that made it a great movie. I was really impressed with this director. I think she's a, she's, if Hollywood would treat her right, she could be, you know, a very strong um, directing force, I think. For 50 years, we have labored peacefully to secure the vote for women. We've been ridiculed, battered, and ignored. Punish those responsible, whatever way you can. <laughs> Mama! All my life, I've done what men told me. Well, I can't have that anymore. What did you think of Black Mass and what are the chances? Yeah, I'm kind of in the minority on Black Mass, as it turns out. But Black Mass is, is really good to me because I love, I love first of all, mob movies. Mm-hmm. I just love them. But I really love Johnny Depp in this. I love watching him play this mean, horrible monster. He's so good. He's so vicious. He's so cruel. I mean, I, I came out of it thinking he's going to win the Oscar for it. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought it's between him and Fassbender. I think if I would mark it down as the number one to win right now, um, waiting for, for Leonardo DiCaprio and the Revenant mm-hmm. as his main challenger. But I think Depp's got it, you know. Well, so the takeaway is it's between him and Fassbender. We don't really know that we st- we're still at Carol since Cannes for, for women, and we don't really know our best picture yet. So when is the next sort of Oscar predictor? From Toronto, the big movie was Truth with Kate Blanchett and uh, Our Our Brand is Crisis with Sandra Bullock. Both of those. Also a journalism movie, the Kate yeah. Blanchett movie Truth, about the 60 minutes. Yeah, journalism and politics. And then Our Brand is Crisis is about politics influencing. But according to everybody who saw it, Truth is supposed to be a really, really strong, really good movie. So that's one to watch out for. And Sandra Bullock, maybe you think Oscar and champ? Sandra Bullock, maybe. Yeah. Um, that movie's getting kind of mixed responses, but her performance is, is being celebrated. It is kind of a comedic performance. So that might take it out. The best actress is filling up really quickly and nobody really knows how Carol is going to go because at first it was going to be Kate Blanchett lead and Rooney Mara supporting, but it looks like Kate Blanchett's probably going to get nominated for truth and not for this one. So where are they going to still keep Rooney Mara in supporting? Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. So it's hard to say, uh, but certainly Brie Larson for room will be, you know, a strong contender and Blanchett. We don't have a front runner for actress right now. I don't think Uh, Johnny Depp is the front runner for actor, but we don't have a, a comparable in the, in the best actress category. Well, when, when do you think, when is the next time you can, Show us your crystal ball. <laughs> I think around the end of November would be would be a really good time to call Best Picture. That marks the end of festival season. So it's um, uh, Bridge of Spies, which will play the New York Film Festival. And then we have The Revenant, Spielberg. And we have Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. And uh, we have Star Wars coming up. So there's a lot of big movies. And I think then you'd know what the, the movies are going to be. So can uh, we check back with you again sometime? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Sasha. This was great. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you so much, Sasha. So we'll check back with you in November then to see how the Oscar race is going. 
And thank you, Professor Dick Lair. The movie Black Mass is about to premiere in the U.S. and all over Europe very soon. And thank you for listening. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or the homepage popcultureconfidential.com. Let us know what you think of the shows. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Borg, and produced by René Witterstedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. Thank you very much for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.